what hope ravens uh, joy and delight and you sing praises to our great God. That you are in some ways overwhelmed with the grace of God in your life, not necessarily always in a constant emotional way, but overwhelmed in the sense that you know that your God has been gracious to you in ways that you can never fully articulate. Even if you go on singing songs the rest of the day, the rest of the week, the rest of the year, the rest of your life, you cannot exhaust the greatness of our God and what you've done for you. Worship is, of course, to be one of the central themes of the believer's life. It must be that way because of who our God is. Intrinsically, he is great. There are none greater than he is. He is the God who dwells in unapproachable light, who is so pure and so holy that when sinners come into his presence without protection, they find themselves immediately undone. God is worthy to be worshipped simply for who he is in himself, his intrinsic holiness. And he has created special creatures, some legion of the angels or some realm of the angel that's around him, just to declare his holiness day and night without ceasing. And for that reason alone, each of us has cause to give praise to our God and to worship him. And yet there is a dilemma because as we would seek to come and offer him any praise, we would not be welcome. Were we to come into his presence on our own, with our own standing, we would be, as Isaiah was, completely undone, covering our mouths, terrified of the judgment that is due to us because we have entered into the presence of the Holy, place where we are not welcome on our own terms. And yet, there we find the very God who is worthy of worship for who he is in himself. We find as a God who is now worthy of worship for what he does for us, because just as he had one of the seraphim fly over to Isaiah with one of the coals from the altar and touch the lip of Isaiah to make him clean, so too the Father has sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, clothe us with his blood so that we are now welcomed into the presence of the Holy One without condemnation, without judgment, that we are free to come and now give him worship. Worship for what? Worship for who he is and the very thing that he has done to make the pathway open for us to come into his presence. And so as we come to him to worship him, we only really come to worship him for who he is and what he has done for us. The central theme of our life ought to be this worship that we render to our God for his greatness and for what he has done for us. He has cleansed us, opened the access for us to come into his presence. Israel as a nation was to be a nation of worshipers, a people who knew the greatness of their God and knew what he had done for them. And so they are to worship him. The text that we have this morning in Exodus chapter 23, which I invite you to turn there now, 
is a text that writes into the calendar for Israel moments in their week and in their year that are to remind them of the worship that they are to bring to their God. It was to be such a, a given for Israel that they were worshipers that the very calendar that they lived by was to have written into it moments of worship to their great God. Exodus chapter 23, verse 10 through 19 is our passage this morning, and it will describe to you the, the weekly remembrance of God's grace to them on the Sabbath, and then the three times a year feasts that they were to give glory to God for his provision to them, as well as this seven-year cycle of letting the land rest, bury the men remembering God's provision worshiping him for such. Exodus chapter 23, I'll read verses 10 through 19. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. For the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of, the, of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed, shall keep the feast of harvest of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with any leaven, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat with some other milk. Bow together prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you to come minister to us by your word. It's your great power that you hold. Into your great intentions and will for us, we pray that you would accomplish much during these next moments. Pray that you would give us a renewed reverence for you and a renewed commitment. Give all that we have to you and acknowledge all that we have is from you. Lord, make this so in our lives that we might be a people to worship and glory and obey you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Then Israel as a nation was to be a nation that lived under God. They're to live under his authority, of course. This is the law portion of Exodus where they're being told how they are to live by God's standards. This is God speaking to them from Mount Sinai. These are non-negotiables. This is how the nation is to exist, what they are to do. They're to live under God. Even their worship was to be determined 
by what God desired from them. It was not off the seat of their pants how they wanted to worship him. This was according to his instruction. They're to live under God. That phrase is a phrase that I repeated hundreds if not thousands of times growing up as I said the Pledge of Allegiance in my school uh, every morning, that we're one nation under God. Really? Is that the case? That we are a nation under God. To say it and to mean it means that we submit ourselves to God and all that he would have for us to do. That we acknowledge his absolute sovereignty over our lives. To say that we are one nation under God, probably better understood that we are one nation under God's judgment. There is not necessarily the commitment to serve and revere the great and almighty God amongst us. And yet, we understand that every nation on the planet is a mixture of people who know God and don't know God. But as a church, as a, a people who belong to God, certainly we would use that phrase in a different way, that we are under God and that we submit every aspect of our life to Him. No component of our life to be removed. And so especially our worship is to be done in the way that He desires, the means that He provides. And for Israel, their worship of the Lord was written into the very calendar that he gives them here. Reminders throughout their week and throughout their year and throughout their years that their God is a God who provides and a God who deserves worship. In that sense, they are to live under God. Israel's relationship to God must be reflected in the mandates that he gives in this very chapter. The kind of people they were to be was to reflect the kind of God that they belonged to. So God ordered it such that the law that he gave would demonstrate who their God was and is. The very calendar would reflect to the nations around them who they belonged to. Israel in this section of Exodus is being told how to live with God as their God. And the laws that they are given are governing a wide variety of elements of their life, beginning with the Ten Commandments that is fairly comprehensive to every component of their life, going on to more detailed laws. Following that, it covers social life, it covers civil life, it covers criminal justice, and it covers, of course, the religion that they are to observe. In the next section, following what we just read this morning, God is going to describe to Israel how he's going to bring them into the land. Right now they're in the wilderness, and they have been subsisting off of God speaking to them from the mountain, and then God physically provided for them through manna uh, on the ground every morning except for the Sabbath day, and then water provided miraculously uh, from the rock. So God has been providing for them, but as he now tells them that it's not too far off until they enter the promised land. He's going to prepare for them to enter from the point of view of Mount Sinai. Of course, we know that Israel is 40 years away because of the rebellion in the wilderness, but at some point they will inherit the land of promise. And as they enter into that land, something 
different is going to happen, of course. Not only will they have a land to call their own home, but when they enter into the land, the supernatural provision of food is going to cease. Because God is providing for them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they will be able to have the rains come and produce crops, and they will be largely an agrarian society, subsisting off of what the land produces. And if you know anything of your own part, you know that when you start to go into the realm of self-sufficiency, you begin to enter into this independent spirit that no longer acknowledges God as your source of provision for everything. When you have to wake up and see manna on the floor every day and know that that is bread from heaven, then it could be a little bit easier to know I depend on God to physically provide for me every single day. Of course, Israel failed in that, as we would have. But when they enter into the land, certainly the temptation is going to be there now as they begin to harvest their own crops, that they may think they've got this, that they can do this on their own. And yet, very provision of crops in the land must be remembered as God being the one who provided for them. So God gives this calendar to them that is going to help them remember throughout their agrarian year that God is the one who provides and that they need to worship him because he is indeed the one who provides. God is always our God. It's not as though you just get a part-time God, like a part-time employer. You get just to punch in your car to punch out, and you get to render service to him for a few moments and then check out. Our God is a full-time God, and we are full-time his people. Our God is always then providing for us, always then being God to us, and never taking a break. And so there is never a moment then in our lives in which we ought not to render him worship and adoration for the provision that he gives to us in our life. We are always his sheep, and he is always our shepherd. He is always the potter, and we are always his clay. We are always his people, and he is always our God, if we belong to him through Jesus Christ. You belong to him. You are bought with a price to glorify God, whether it appears that you have resources to care for yourself for the next month, next year, or you depend on God every day for this daily bread. Israel was being prepared for a life in the land of promise. Part of that was God working into their calendar ways that they would be reminded that he is still the one who provides for them. Israel's calendar then, in some ways, shows that their labor and the fruits of their labor do not belong ultimately to them. They belong to God. And we might wonder, is that fair? They're the ones working, they're the ones sowing, they're the ones reaping. Is it fair that this needs to be returned to God? In an employment setting, we can become a little bit indignant where you may uh, come up with some 
great policy or invention that's going to be really profitable and useful within your company. But guess who gets the credit for that? Not you. The corporation for which you work, they really get the um, economic advantage for what you have done and think, well, that's not fair. Leaving the employer analogy aside, when you come into the realm of dealing with God, it is always fair. It's always fair. Who is it that gave you the very life that you have to accomplish anything? Who is it that gives you any strength in your muscles to do any work? Who is it who has given you any mental faculties or resources to think through any problem and solve any difficulty? Of course, it is our God. And we have to remember that we're constantly in a precarious state of if he withdraws his providing hand, then we quite literally have nothing. We have no resource in our bank account that we can claim as our own. Israel was to be a nation that understood this. At least that was the intention. Because as they entered into the land, they need to know that their God is the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth. The God who sends rains and withholds rain. The God who has storehouses of snow and hell that sends them when he wants. And so they would be a people who would know that when they sow the seed, if there's no rain, there's no crop. They should be a people who knows that that seed is a little miracle that you put into the ground and only by providing some water generates life from it. And you look at it as a farmer and think, I really had nothing to do with that seed germinating and producing roots. And you have to give credit where credit is due to the brilliant God who creates life and sustains life and lets the seasons continue. And if he is the one to send rain, that would give glory to him for the crops produced. And if he is the one who withholds it, we realize that we are in a precarious condition. That's still true today, by the way. We don't live in the ancient technology of ancient Israel, but being still a people that depend on food to survive, we ought to know that in an instant, God in his sovereign power can withdraw from us all the mercies that he gives to us on a day-by-day -day basis. In an instant, he could withhold the rains. He could stop the irrigation systems. He can cause calamities that will reduce supply chains to infantile. And we have no resources in an instant. We still live with as great dependence on our God as anyone ever has. We just fail to recognize it so often because we have all of this technology. We have irrigation systems. We have genetically engineered foods. We have things stored away for years and years. But in it, it all be gone. Our dependence on God is absolute, whether we know it or not. And Israel was to realize this. They would be tempted to turn to other gods and try to solicit them for fertility. This is why he says in 23 verse 13, Pay attention to all that I have said to you. 
and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Israel will be tempted to go to other gods like Baal, Asherah, fertility gods, that they could perform gross sexual acts to try to mimic fertility and then produce the rains from the gods above. And yet God wants his people to know that all provision comes from him alone. All blessing comes from him alone. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3 says this, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest, and the great harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Basically, their whole year, if God so blessed, would be occupied with productive work. He would provide the rain to lead to an abundant harvest. But if they disobeyed him, he would find there's no yield. Just following that in Leviticus 26, 14 to 20, God says this, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. When they plow, there will be no fruit. When they look up, the heavens will not give rain. Is it not in the Lord's hands to give or withhold rain? All we can do is mildly forecast the weather. We cannot control it. Thankful for all the technology we have, but that does not mean we are any less ultimately dependent on the world. This is the life Israel is living. And as a result, they were to be led not to despair, but actually to worship because they would realize that all the blessings they receive are ultimately from their gracious God who has rescued them. And so we are reminded that the Lord graciously provides you for you. This should lead us to worship. The Lord provides everything for us, he even provides our work and our rest. That's what is being said there in verses 10 through 12. For Israel, as this is discussing the Sabbath, they were to be characterized by this repetitive weekly uh, commemoration of the Lord making the heavens and the earth by working six days and then taking rest on the Sabbath, just stopping their work. They were to show to the world the God that they serve and believe in 
is the God made heaven and earth six days and ceased his work on the seventh. And that cycle was really a, a merciful one because God gave them the joy of working for six days. But work without rest just becomes tedious. And so rest was granted there in verse 12. Seventh day shall rest. Your ox and your donkey may have rest. The son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Quite literally, it means that they would uh, catch their breath. So God implemented into Israel's weekly cycle work and rest, really for everyone. And beyond that, he worked into the calendar a, a six-year, seven-year cycle in which they would work the land for six years, it says in verse 10. But in verse 11, the seventh year, you shall let it rest in my fallow. God was really giving to Israel a, a huge instruction. Work six years the land, and in seventh, you have to stop weeping. For farmers, taking a whole year off is huge. For anyone, taking a whole year off of your work is hugely influential in your economic development. So for to be, to have your field life fallow for a whole year, being incredibly difficult. Yet the Lord knew what he was doing. For that year, the land would be replenished with the nutrients. And not only that, there'd be an element of mercy to it where the poor would have access to whatever grew in the field that year, and they would be able to eat from it. And whatever they left over, the beasts in the field would eat. This was to be a comprehensive instruction to all of Israel. On the seventh year, all of Israel cease from sowing in their fields. This would require a huge amount of trust. To surrender to the Lord the right to govern cycles of your farm. And you would say, yes, Lord, I believe that I can take a year off and you'll still fine. Many times, blessings from the Lord come through trusting him some of the difficult communities. Well, that's what Israel was to do. And yet, even living this way would produce in them a greater likeness to their God because this was a merciful expression of providing for the poor. I was talking with my kids about this passage, and one of them asked me, well, what about the other six years? What about the four then? What happened to them then? Did they only get access this one year? And the, the reality here is that Israel was to become like their God. And their God worked into the calendar this one year where the poor would have access to the fields, in Israel, the other six years was not to think, wow, I'm really glad that God is merciful for the rest of the years because I'm really stingy all these other times. They were to become like them, to be merciful, and it was actually written into the laws that they wouldn't reap up into the edge of their field to leave that to the field. So this very commandment is producing them a trust in God and a development of the same kind of mercy that God possesses. Because of that, they realize who God is, they realize his provision, 
They ought to be compelled to worship him all the more. But to make sure that Israel would worship him properly, he writes in these three festivals. And it really shows in these festivals that God graciously provides food and joy which should be returned worship to him. So verse 14, three times in a year shall keep a feast to me. The way the people of Israel was to be governed by the Lord was marked by these three festivals. They're really called uh, pilgrim feasts. These were the ones where all the males were summoned from wherever they lived around Israel to go to the place where it would be told later, Jerusalem. And they'd have these feasts, and there are these three feasts that they have that they're to make journeys to. Although it says in verse 17 that all the males shall appear before the Lord, that does not exclude women and children from coming. Remember in Luke chapter 2, um, when Jesus' parents, it says, go to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. And they take Jesus with them, and with them, and they end up losing him there, and they head back home, and they finally realize that Jesus is missing, because they're in a crowd of all these family members, and it just shows that it was a really a family vacation that would go down to Jerusalem. And so some ways, these feasts were built-in vacations for Israel, where the family would load up the station wagon, truck it down to Jerusalem, and have a vacation for a certain amount of time. In many ways, it's a mercy of the Lord to write into the calendar three, three times a year where they get to lay down their labors and go to a place. But it wasn't a, a secular vacation by any stretch. This was a vacation focused on worship. Notice the emphasis in verse 14, keep a feast to me, or verse 15, as I commanded you, Verse 17, shall appear before the Lord God. Or verse 19, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. It was not a secular holiday. It was infused with worship and attentiveness to God. And each of these three feasts were connected to their uh, agricultural calendar. Israel would be reminded at each point of their year about a significant moment in their farming process. These three feasts each pinpoint a moment of significance. The first one that's listed is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is connected to the Feast of Passover as well. And it would be March, April time period. And it commenced the beginning of their religious calendar as the first month of their religious year, a reminder of when they were led out of Egypt. At the same time, it marked a key point in their agricultural year because it was the time when the barley harvest ripened. The first things that they had um, become to reap for the year. And attached to this feast of unleavened bread was another feast described in Leviticus 23, 9-14 called the, the Day of First Fruits. In Israel, first crops of the year was to take a sheaf that they had gathered before they could eat any of it they needed to bring it to the Lord and devote it to him. They were not to eat any of their grain until they brought it along with other offerings to the Lord. And so this really commenced their reaping season. Fifty days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread came the Feast of Harvest. This happened in May or June. This is when the wheat harvest would come to be ready 
and they were to go to Jerusalem again with offerings from this new grain. You can see that in Leviticus 23, verse 15. This feast is also known as the Feast of Weeks, or later known as Pentecost, AD 50, because it came 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the third pilgrim feast was the Feast of Ingathering. This would happen in September, October time period. And this was the one that kind of culminated it all. It says it was happening at the end of the year, verse 16, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. It's really the mark of the end of their agricultural year. They finished all the harvesting, all the grains were done, as well as the figs, the grapes, the olives, grain threshed and stored. And now they can come, having put in all that work, come to Jerusalem with their tithe. They present it to the Lord. And there for a week from the beginning of the 15th day of the seventh month, they would stay there in kind of this uh, temporary housing. Because this is also known as the Feast of Foods. And the people were instructed to make these temporary shelters, which basically have camping vacations. You pack up your family in the camping gear and go to Jerusalem. And there they present food offering and other offerings to the Lord, and they basically celebrate his provision. And you see how these all work out because it shows throughout their year, as they have their very lives provided for through the fruit of the ground, the rains that were given, and they're told by the Lord that they are to go to Jerusalem to remember before their God is the one provides for them. And all these feasts in verse 15 gives a key point that none shall appear before me empty and the expectation of all of those feasts would be come to the Lord not only not empty handed but it says later in verse 18 or 19 the best of the first fruits of your ground. Bring the best. And you offer it to the Lord. That can be tough for us. When we think about giving things away, some people are naturally generous. Most of us are naturally stingy. And if we see a good resource, we don't want to just put it on fire and get burned up. But for Israel, it was mandatory that they would take what they had and bring it. Some of it would be for the priests, some of it would be offerings, would be placed on the altar. In either case, they would not have access to it any longer. And our stingy hearts can have a hard time letting go of that. Even a tenth of what we have, and especially the best of what we have, when we see it and we want it for ourselves. But here's the reality. Israel is to look at the very best of what they had, and they were to remember the God who provided it for them in the first place. And so with open hands, they bring it back as a rendering of thanksgiving to the Lord. But really, all they're bringing in the end is the very thing God gave them to you in the first place. So as we think about giving to the Lord, what do you have that is truly your, that you have generated by completely your own strengthening? Nothing. So anything that we bring to the Lord is brought with a heart full of thanksgiving, knowing God is the one who provided it for me in the first place. And with overflowing joy for what he has provided, 
He is giving you an opportunity to express to him some little bit of your thanks to the God who takes care of you. This is the worship that Israel is to render. And it was rendered with the very resources God provided to them personally. This eliminates that kind of self-reliant stinginess by which we turn our eyes off the Lord and put them on ourselves. Well, we are to worship our God for the grace that He has given us. This was to be a time of joy, a time of celebration. It was not to be a time of reluctance, a time of dreariness, a time of celebration, even as the NIV translated to celebrate these festivals. Now, we don't keep any of these festivals here. Really, we don't gather up our grain, bring them to the Lord, and know you are generous in giving, but it doesn't happen at a special three-time during the year event. These feasts all have a significance that goes much deeper. They're not primarily about the physical provision. They are primarily about the salvation that God gives. Each one of these is marked by a special theology that indicates the God of Israel, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a God who provides salvation. The Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread, was to commemorate being brought out of Egypt on that night when the destroyer went over the land and took all the firstborn except for those who had the blood of the lamb pasted around, painted around Norbus Lindholm. It was a time to remember that so hasty was their exodus from evil from, from Egypt that they didn't have time to leaven their bread. So they would eat flat cakes for a week to remember God brought them out of Egypt, out of the old of Egypt, into the new salvation that he has brought. The Feast of Harvest or Weeks or Pentecost was to indicate that God was bringing them into a land where they themselves could now grow their own crops. They were no longer slaves. There were a people with a home, a bountiful harvest. And what better, truly, than having a home, a place to call your own, a land that provides for you and God cares for you. It really was the epitome or the consummation of the salvation that they were given to be brought not only out of slavery, but to be brought somewhere, the promised land, and then the Feast of Ingathering and Feast of Booths was a reminder that God provided for the good for them in the wilderness. While they dwelt in booths in the wilderness and had temporary shelters, God still provided for them. He provided manna on the ground and water from the rock, and light and shade from the pillar of presence that was constantly with them. God provides their salvation. Such was the Lord providing everything for them, not just physically, but true salvation. In each one of these feasts, wonderful as they were for Israel, really just a shadow. That's what Colossians called it. 
When you see a shadow, you don't see the thing, but you know the thing is there. If you see a shadow of a tree cast in front of you, you're not really so much interested in shadow as the fact that there's a tree and you just have to turn around and see it. These feasts were shadows of something better, someone. The shadow finds its substance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of these were pointers to the greater reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, don't we know this? When you come to the feast of Passover, don't you know Christ is your Passover lamb, whose blood has been shed for you to spare you the destruction that comes on those who are not covered with the blood of the lamb? And don't you know the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the newness that Christ gives you as he rescues you out of the old of slavery to sin and brings you into the newness of life with God? Don't you know something of Pentecost, that Feast of Harvest, of being brought home and of sharing it with many around you? As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit was given to many that day from many different nations, it's real, the reality is coming that God is a God who saves, and you only have that salvation in Jesus Christ. You have an eternal home given to you in heaven where your inheritance will not be touched by any rust or moth or thief. And don't you know something of the Feast of Booths, that God is the God who provides for you through Jesus Christ. He provided manna for the Israelites, provided water from the rock, but for us, provides Jesus Christ, bread from heaven and true drink, and he satisfies us with his love in Christ. All of those festivals pointing to the greater provision that is ours in Jesus Christ, the fullness of our salvation in him and in him alone. Even in the Sabbath, we find in Jesus Christ our rest. As he says to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden light. Then we come find Jesus Christ be your true rest. One who has given you rescue from that exhausting life sin. Now you know what it means to read. All these festivals, pointers, the ultimate salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now as we consider the worship that we render to our great God and the great things he's done for us, we realize that we're just like the Israelites. Yes, we come to him with hands full of thanksgiving, but only based on the things that he has provided for us. That's our worship.